Lord, we come to you now, and we are very thankful for our time uh, tonight to be able to stop midweek and to uh, open the Word together. Uh, again, we're thankful that we don't have to whisper. We're thankful that um, your presence is uh, with us, that we have the Spirit to give us understanding. Uh, Lord, as we talk about worship and um, really the centrality of God in our lives, I pray that you would guide us as you see fit tonight. Um, I pray that for those who need encouragement to persevere, that you would give that encouragement. Uh, For those who need conviction, that they might um, confess uh, sin and repent, I pray that you would grant that tonight. Um, Ultimately, our goal is your glory. We want to honor you and please you in the way that we live, and we learn how to live by looking at your word. And so I pray that you would uh, make that happen tonight as only you can. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you haven't already, turn to First Chronicles. We're going to be in First um, and Second Chronicles really the next two weeks. Um, it's going to be a little bit different because normally I would do First Chronicles and then Second Chronicles, but um, the next couple of weeks we're going to be kind of going back and forth uh, in the two of them to, to look at some specifics. First and Second Chronicles are largely repeating what we've already heard in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. But the nice thing about First and Second Chronicles is it leaves out a bunch of the negative stuff. You know, the Bathsheba moments and things like that. It leaves those out, and it makes it to be a much more positive and encouraging book. Um, the first 10 chapters of First and Second Chronicles are largely genealogy, um, historically uh, significant content that reminds us that this is not a fable or something, you know, that happened in a faraway land long, long ago, but it's, it's factual. And each of the names mentioned in the genealogy are of great importance, and um, I want y'all to know that because I'm not going to read them all tonight, but that doesn't make them any less important. So First uh, and Second Chronicles, really what we see in those, these two books is extremes from heights to depths. You could call First Chronicles heights and Second Chronicles depths. And in these extremes, um, in the times of Israel's history, uh, we learn a lot about worship. Um, if you're looking for a word to kind of capture what these books are, centrality, um, God-centeredness, that, that's what he's teaching his people uh, through this large span of time that's covered in First and Second Chronicles. When you think about corporate worship, um, the time when the church gathers, um, the first two things that probably pop into your head are what? What are some things that pop into your head when you think about corporate worship? We gather on a Sunday morning. Bam, what's in your head right now? Sing. What else? What? Bride of Christ. That wasn't what I was going for, but that was good. Sing, Bride of Christ. What else? Listen, yeah, there's preaching, we're opening the word. And so those are things that are just, you know, automatic. We think about gathering for corporate worship, and those are things that jump into our heads. what we do. We get together, we sing, and we listen. And why? Um, When did this happen? That's kind of what we're going to look at tonight. When did this begin? This is what we do every week. We gather as a church. We sing praises to our Lord. We sing different kinds of songs. Um, We ask for his presence to be with us. Um, we, We give what we call a sacrifice of praise. We listen to the preached word. We know that the Bible says anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. So we listen, and then we go, and we try to walk in it. We're called to be um, not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. So we've got these things that we do every week, but what, what we find in First Chronicles is kind of where that began. When did it happen that people called Christians would get together and sing, and why is it okay? Uh, we're going to look at that tonight. What, why is that okay? Who started the whole thing? Have God's people always sung about him when they gathered? Were they singing in the garden? If not, who started it? Why did they feel led to do so? And why music? Is it not enough to simply speak about what God has done? Must we sing? 
How many musical people do we have in the room? Raise your hands. Oh, this would be great. Like three? <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So the first point tonight is you don't have to be a musical person for this to matter. This is important, whether you're musical or not. Uh, my hope is that the bar will be raised for us uh, in worship and song as we look at what we're going to look at tonight. Um, that as we learn more about why we do what we do week after week, that uh, we'll be informed and thereby freed up to be even more wholehearted in worship. Um, a, a theme that you see through the scriptures is that God's not real big on half-heartedness. He's not real big on mediocrity, um, lukewarmness. And so my hope is that as we study these things, that you would be freed up to be as wholehearted in your worship as, as possible. Like when you're singing, um, some of us may have certain things that restrain us and hold us back from really singing wholeheartedly. And I'm hoping that uh, the word will, will inform that uh, tonight. <clears throat> Turn to First Chronicles 16. As I said, the first 10 chapters are largely um, genealogy. Uh, you get to chapter 10, we see the death of Saul and his sons. David is anointed king in chapter 11. And we see the movement of the ark, the mighty men. And then we get to 16 where, where the ark's placed in the tent. And um, I want us to read verses 7 through 13 together. First Chronicles 16, verse 7 through 13. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done his miracles, and the judgments he uttered. Offspring of Israel, his servants, sons of God, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are on all the earth. <coughs> our worship is all about God. Uh, that might seem very elementary. Like when I say our worship is all about God, you might, of course it is. Um, but it's really easy to forget that. I mean, very, very easy to forget that. Um, none of us would audibly say, I'm here for me, and this time's all about me. Uh, but the truth is, we can have many thoughts that go in that direction. Um, Mark Dever, uh, we're using his Old Testament survey to go through the Old Testament. Um, he, he makes a comment that at the very center of the life of God's people is God. God is sovereign. God is central. And when we begin to forget this simple truth, we fall into a number of different messes. So my first question that I'd like to just kind of talk about a little bit is, what does it mean when it says God's sovereign? What does that mean? Highest authority? Yeah, that's good. <coughs> what else? In control of all things? What else? All-knowing? All-powerful? Accomplishing his plan, no matter what? What else? Unlimited? Yeah, this is, sovereignty is this picture of there's just absolute supremeness. Um, there's a bank that I saw in Dallas called Sovereign Bank. And it just hit me so weird. I was like, that word doesn't belong there. That, like, that's God's word. You're not above God, bank, sovereign. You're not sovereign bank. And so <clears throat> it's a word that really, in my mind, um, belongs 
to the Lord. There's, there's no one above him. There, there's no one who, who trumps him. There's no one who can unseat him or um, distract him from what he's doing. So a, another question I want to talk about is what are some messes that we could fall into by forgetting that God is central in our worship? What are some messes that we could fall into by forgetting that God is central to our worship? Thinking that we're in charge. What else? There's a lot of them. We ride on our own emotions. Mm-hmm. Instead of being yeah. in our relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I feel a certain way. Yeah, there's a good, good thing for us to remember that just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. And so uh, you show up to worship, you don't feel like it. So then your worship is lackluster and mediocre. You leave feeling uh, unencouraged and, and distracted. That doesn't mean that God is any less good and sovereign. Um, he, he may not have been central in your worship that morning, but it doesn't mean anything about his character at all. So yeah, our emotions can get the best of us and we can be driven by our emotions, but we're not called to be driven by, by that. What else can happen? What, mess, what other messes can we fall into when we forget God is central in our worship? Yeah. 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 We show up defining our own needs and trying to find out, you know, what, you know, I, I'm going to say what I need and I'm going to look for what I need rather than saying, I'm going to go to the Lord to see what I need. What were you saying, Aaron? Yeah. We worship other things. If God's not central in our worship, well, what are we worshiping then? Who are we worshiping then? What ideas are we worshiping? What thoughts are we worshiping? What were you saying? Yeah. Yeah, we cannot lose focus on, on the fact that God is to be central in all of our worship. You, you begin to think that maybe just because you don't prefer something, then everyone else must feel the same way. Do any of y'all have like that one worship song that you just really don't like? Y'all have that? Does anyone want to share what that one is? And if Clint wrote it, don't say it. <laughs> any worship songs that really bother y'all? Seriously, I want to know. Oh, we went from laughter to nervous laughter <laughs> to silence. Lord, I lift your name on high. Okay. Sorry. Sorry you don't like lifting the Lord's name on high. That's weird. Um, uh, so we can begin to have, when we forget that God's to be central in all of our worship, we have these perceptions, these thoughts to where maybe we don't like something, so we think, well, no one else likes that, or we think something's best, so that must be best for for, for everybody else as, as well as ourselves. You may prefer one band over another, one style over another. Uh, you find yourself not worshiping as deeply when your tastes are not being appeased. I have trouble with this. If I find myself in a setting where it's an organ and a hymnal, and it's, um, you know, I haven't done that since I was seven years old, it feels different. And um, that doesn't mean that it's because um, God's lacking or their worship is weak. If you find yourself in that setting and you're mocking the worship leader or the music or the organist or whatever, um, that's, that's your bad. You need to repent of that because the, the issue shouldn't be the style. Style shouldn't affect us so much in the depth of our worship. It's not an uncommon practice for professing believers to choose a church solely on the type of music they play during corporate worship. I've talked to many, many people 
that will make their decision on where they're going to church, the place they're calling their church home, where they're going to worship. We don't go to church. We are the church. Don't forget that. Um, based on the style of worship. And, and that's like number one, top of the list. Not is God central in worship. Um, worship and song can become the easiest place to forget that it's all about God. Another thing that happens is that you can very easily lose focus on God's intentions and what he aims to accomplish. Do y'all feel that way when you show up to corporate worship on a Sunday morning? That God has intentions. God's going to accomplish something. He has a plan for that day. And, and he, he intends to bless you in that and to inform you, to encourage you, to admonish you, to help you, to shine light in a dark corner. We need to show up to corporate worship mindful of the fact that God's not just kind of waiting on us to see what, what, what's going to happen. He, he has plans for that, and we're to be faithful in that by keeping him uh, central. You can find yourself going through the motions and making caveats according to what's easier or what your preferences are, but God has a purpose and a plan he doesn't just prefer us to spend our time focused on him. Hear that. God doesn't say, when y'all gather, I would prefer you to spend your time focused on me. Uh, he ordains and commands it according to his purpose for the glory of his name. So we're going to consider David today. Um, here he is worshiping wholeheartedly, choosing his words very carefully, what we just read in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Chronicles 16. Um, he's, he's worshiping wholeheartedly, choosing his words carefully and appointing them to be sung in the right manner by the right people. There's, there's attention to detail in their corporate worship. Um, but guess what happened three months before that? He lost sight of what God intended and a guy died because of it. So turn over to first Chronicles 13. This was three months before this glorious occasion where the tabernacle is, is being built and the temple's being built, and the ark's being brought in, and the people are worshiping, and they're singing songs, and the Levitical choir, there's all this good stuff going on. But three months before, when they were moving the ark, um, things didn't go well because of their focus in worship. So look at chapter 13, 1 Chronicles 13, 3 through 14. It says this, uh, Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, uh, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Now, just to be clear, what does the ark represent? Presence of God, absolutely. So if you don't care about the ark, presence of God might not be as central to your worship as it should be. So it goes on to say, uh, let us bring again the ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for this thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Labo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is to Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah. I'm going to quiz you on all these names. Uh, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. So climb into this. The ark is moving in the right direction. There's lots of worship going on. People are bringing their instruments with them. Like we're not going to leave them on the stage. We're going to go along and we're going to sing. We're going to worship. This is good movement. This is a celebration. Um, and when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark for the oxen stumbled. So... The ark is on a cart. The oxen are pulling the cart. Oxen stumble. Cart shakes. There's the ark. Uzzah says, oh, no, and tries to steady it. 
Seems innocent enough, right? Now let's see what happens. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, which means breaking out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. It was significant of the presence of God. So why did Uzzah reach out and touch the ark? To steady it. It was falling. Uh, do, you, do you all have like an expensive piece of like furniture, a trinket in your house? I mean, imagine something of real significance. It's falling. Your just gut instinct is to lunge, catch it, do what you got to do to make sure it doesn't break. <clears throat> now, why did Uzzah die? He disobeyed God. How did he disobey God? But it was falling. Okay, how, to, how had God previously directed them to transport it? That's right, what kind of poles? Anyone know? Winter, winter, chicken dinner, look at that. Acacia wood, there you go. Overlaid with gold, and they had a certain number of rings spaced at a certain point, and you would always put the poles through there, and that's how you would carry it. Now, so why did Uzzah die? Here's the thing. We're looking at the wholeheartedness of our worship. We're looking at the centrality of God. Uzzah died while transporting the ark because he tried to keep it from falling. They thought that they were being wholehearted. Uzzah thought he was being wholehearted. But in not doing it the way that God had said over in Exodus 20, 24, which we'll look at in a minute, they were not being wholehearted. Their heart was in what they were doing, but they weren't, it wasn't rightly in what they were doing. There's a danger of being reactive in your worship. If you don't have things that are steady in your life, or you're saying, this is what God wants, this is how we move, this is what we do in a situation like this, we know what God has said. If you don't have that foundation, you'll be reactive in your worship, and you may think, man, I'm being wholehearted, but you can be wholehearted in the wrong direction. And that's what happened here. He was trying to do something good, but he, he dismissed what the Lord had already shown him. So they decide three months later to give it another shot. So turn over to 15. I'm going to read 15, 2 through 3, and then 12 through 13. So three months later, they said, okay, we don't want to do that wrong again. David has already said, how in the world can I bring this to the city of David? Um, Uzzah died. I don't understand. And, uh, and then they, they go and it says uh, in 15, 2, then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. So what did David have to do to get this right? Go back to what? Go back to what the Lord had said. In order to get this right, he, he couldn't just take another approach. He couldn't just brainstorm with his buddies and say, Let's, we're going to give this thing another shot. He, he had to go back to what the Lord had said. He had to go back to what God had said about the Levites and the Levites tending to the ark. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And he, David, said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, 
so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the reason Uzzah died is that they did not seek God according to God's way, according to God's rule. They were starting to seek God, but they they were seeking God in their own way. Do y'all see how subtle that can be? Do you see how subtle that can be? If I said to you, is it bad to seek God? You said no. But if you seek him the wrong way, you're not doing it according to his rule. You're not doing it according to the way that God says, come to me. And so that's what happened here. And he says, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to his rule. And then in Exodus, that's where we find the acacia poles and the loops that that you won the chicken dinner on. That was good. Uzzah lost his life. I want you all to hear this. Uzzah lost his life because a caveat or exception was made for the sake of efficiency. How many times in your life have you made an exception to your worship or the way you're moving or the calling on your life because of efficiency? What are some... I don't want any confession out loud. It'll be very uncomfortable. Um, But what are some ways that we can spring towards efficiency in our worship where maybe we can have a misstep real quickly? Just what are some very vague areas where we can find ourselves making exceptions to the rule or exceptions to what we know is right or exceptions to faithfulness in the name of efficiency? Yeah, yeah, the headings, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover some, some headings today in my Bible study. No, no. Skimping on your Bible study, what are some other ways that we could make a, uh, an exception to a rule or a caveat uh, for efficiency? Yeah. Yeah, not considering the entire Word of God, but doing topical things that are more popular. Um, I could come to a point in the scriptures where I see God demanding your entire life. By the way, that's a pretty regular point in scriptures. And I could say as a pastor, everything, like God wants everything, that's going to be unsavory to people in our world, in our culture, where we're independent souls. Um, I think I'm not going to preach over that part. I'm going to either do the read real fast method, or I'm just going to skip over it and go to the next chapter. That would be a caveat that I would be making for the sake of efficiency that's not true to the word. Anything done outside of faith is sin, is what Romans 14 says. I would be saying, uh, God says put your faith in that. That's too much. I'm going I'm to lower the bar so that our people are happy. What are some other areas? Anyone have a hard time paying their bills ever? That ever happened to anybody? Oh, no, just me. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> that's good. Well, this will be my confession time. No, with, when finances are a real area where... Efficiency, man, it would be way more efficient for me to um, save all this tithe money and maybe pay off this piece of debt or save all this, this giving money and, and, uh, and um, do something special for my kids because I love them or save all the, and, and we can start doing these things where we're moving things, but we're doing it for the sake of efficiency and maybe not doing it according to the plan of the Lord. Um, Uzzah lost his life because a caveat or exception was made for the sake of efficiency. Letting the ark be placed on a cart and pulled by oxen would be far more efficient. This is a solid gold piece of arkness. 
it would be more efficient to put it on a cart and let the, let the oxen pull it. Um, but what did God desire? God desired the steady hand of a consecrated worshiper. That should slow everyone in here down a little bit. God desired the steady hand of a consecrated worshiper. Sometimes we think, well, uh, common sense says otherwise, and surely if God's infinite in wisdom, he'll like common sense. So we, we would look at the scenario and say, well, Lord, I, I mean, obviously this is heavy. We're going like more than a block. Um, do these guys have to care? We'll just put it on the, we'll, we'll get the best oxen you've ever seen. We'll brush them, clean them. We'll put, we'll really ready the, the cart up and we'll put the ark on the cart. Common sense, this is going to be a much better plan rather than the acacia poles and the rings like you said before. Um, surely that was just this part of the show. No, no, the, the Lord wants the steady hand of a consecrated worshiper. He wants the Levites to carry it. He wants those who he set apart to carry it. And he wants them to do so in a steady manner. If they were carrying that in the way that they were, each of them in line, um, holding the poles, um, probably the easiest way to picture that would be like, you know, like pallbearers, you know, when they, they're carrying someone um, in their funeral. They'd be lined up, there's poles, they're holding that. What wouldn't have happened if the Levites were carrying it the way that God said? Yeah, there wouldn't have been the, the, the cart wouldn't have rocked because of the oxen stumbling. There would have been a steady hand of a consecrated worshiper, a dedicated worshiper, a wholehearted worshiper. They would have been carrying that and keeping it as steady as it should have been the whole time. The whole point is that the ark never should have shaken. The ark never should have been in a situation where the oxen could stumble and put it in jeopardy. So the steady hand of a consecrated worshiper is what the Lord wanted. Would it take longer? Well, sure. But God chose it the way that he did to slow them down. Is that unsavory to anybody? God chose it the way he did to slow them down. I hate slowing down. Like, that is inefficient. Like, common sense says, if I have to slow down on something, it's just inefficient. It's taking longer than it needs. We're using resources that we don't have to use. Time is a resource. Time is money. And we can all freak out when we've got to slow down on something that's taking too long. That's ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I'm wearied by how long this is taking. But God's choice here was to slow them down. It was not about efficiency. It was about worship. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If we're trying to be efficient, what are we saying about sacrifice? Make as blank as possible. Little. If we're trying to be efficient as worshipers, what we're saying about sacrifice is, I want to make as little sacrifice as possible. Think about if you're sodding your front yard. I have no idea why that's the example that popped into my head, but that's the example that's in my head. And you have pallets of sod. You're not just going to fling them around. You don't want to have a bunch of wasted material at the end. You don't want to make the sacrifice of something you paid money for that you didn't use wisely. Well, if we're looking at our worship in a sense of efficiency, we're saying about sacrifice, I will give as little as I possibly can. And the Lord says, no, you bring your sacrifice of praise. Worship's not about efficiency. His intention was that they humbly, carefully, wholeheartedly approach him the way that he allowed. Take your time and worship God wholeheartedly. Take your time and worship God wholeheartedly. Some of us need to take a big, fat, deep breath and say, okay, the Lord wants me to take my time and to worship him wholeheartedly. 
Next time you sit down with your kids to read the Bible. I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and another two-year-old. There's absolutely nothing efficient about when we read our Bible together. It, I, I'm usually fighting them, uh, quit hitting them, quit pinching them, quit talking to them. Don't breathe on them. Be quiet. Listen to the Bible. I'm reading God's Word. And, and it's, it usually is not like the smoothest, like quickest. Man, we sat down for five minutes as a family. We're all so refreshed from our Bible study. Not usually very efficient at all. Sometimes it doesn't feel all that fruitful either. But um, in time, um, efficiency doesn't matter as much as the wholeheartedness that God would ask of us. There's a, a church building on, I guess it's outside of Waco. It, um, it just says 30-minute worship. Like that, that's, that's the main thing. So if you have family there or something, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, but like if, you're, if, you're, if your cousin's the pastor, I'd love to talk to him. Um, uh, it's just 30 minute worship. It's just like, really? That's the, that's the main thing. The main thing is that this is a place where you can go for 30 minute worship. Yeah. Bigger than I would prefer it to be. And, and it's, um, it's, it's like, that's the main thing. That's the, that's the draw. That is the, it's like bumper stickers. I'm always, I'm always weirded out by bumper stickers. People put on their car. I hate bumper stickers and, uh, don't try to be funny and go put bumper stickers on my car. Um, but like people like, Get back or I'll flick a booger on your windshield. It's like, that's what you want everyone to know. That's the one thing. You've got a shot to tell people around you, this is what I'm about. And that's what you want them to know or whatever. Bumper stickers are weird. So this like 30-minute worship, it's like that's all it says on the the side of the building. So just to give it an equation, 30-minute worship equals pulling the ark with with oxen. When we take that approach, whether it's, I don't like, we, we have so many little things maybe we don't like or things we prefer. All of a sudden, things, become, um, th- things can become uh, non-negotiable that should be negotiable. And then things that shouldn't be negotiable become very negotiable. And we get things backwards. If we're just looking for efficiency, we're looking to give the, the least amount of sacrifice possible um, in worshiping the Lord. So with that, I might go a little over on time tonight. And uh, no one can say anything about it. Um, Turn back to First Chronicles 16. First Chronicles 16 says, I set you up for it. That was rude, wasn't it? 16.7. First Chronicles 16.7 says, Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Um, before David, song had not been a part of corporate worship for the people of God. So when we're asking that question, when did this start? Like, when did... God-believing people start worshiping Jesus in song. When did that happen? It, it didn't happen before David. With David, there was a turning point. Um, the ark is representative of the presence of God. God ordained that it be made, and God ordained that there be a tabernacle by which his people could gather in his presence. The Mosaic tabernacle came before the Davidic tabernacle, and that was Moses. The Mosaic was with, was with Moses. And do, do you all remember what that tabernacle probably sounded like? Remember when we studied through Exodus and spent all those long weeks on tabernacle details? What did that tabernacle sound like? Was there a lot of singing going on? Well, yeah, maybe the bleating of lambs. What else would, there, would you have heard? If the priests were saying anything, what would it be? Yeah, they had, there were prayers, there was confession of sins on behalf of the people, there was offering up of sacrifices. There, you heard a lot of livestock, uh, a lot of them screaming, frankly, as they were 
um, offered up in sacrifice. It was a lot of bloodshed. Um, that was the first tabernacle, and there wasn't a lot of singing. So I want us to see that it was with David that the shift happened. Moses sang, but no one was ever appointed to lead God's people in corporate song as part of worship. So as we had the tabernacle that was centered to, to the entire camp of Israel, there was no one who would get up and like bring in all the Israelites and say, okay, now let us sing together. That didn't happen in the Mosaic tabernacle. What happened in the Davidic tabernacle? When particular sacrifices were made, it's likely that sins were audibly confessed to the Lord, but there was no singing. So in the Mosaic tabernacle, the people worshiped the Lord, particularly through sacrifice, but there was no singing. Hear that again. In the Mosaic tabernacle, the people worshiped the Lord very much through sacrifice, but there was no singing. So turn to 1 Chronicles 28, 19. I'm having you turn there because I want y'all to understand the weight of the words that we hear from David. When David is saying, I'm ordaining that you guys sing and lead the people in this song of thanksgiving. When David says that, I want y'all to read this 1 Chronicles 28, 19 to understand the weight that David's words carry. In 28, 19, it says this. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. Now, any plans that we see shared by David are plans that were given to him by the Lord. Y'all see that? Y'all see the connection there? So I want y'all to hear when David is saying, okay, guys, now we're going to sing. It's because the Lord told David, hey, now we're going to sing. And so when David offered that up, it wasn't just David's cutting edge, edgy worship leader, you know, like, you know, wearing leather pants and on the, on the front end of the sword for the worship leading community. No, he, he, was, he was listening to the Lord and the Lord said, it's time to sing. And so David said, it's time to sing. And, and that's how that happened. When, when the Lord spoke, the plans that he had, he shared with David. So any plans that we see shared by David are plans that were given him by the Lord. Every measurement, every office, every responsibility, all of it was from the Lord. Look at 1 Chronicles 23. I want, to see, I want you to see a sample of what God ordained. So these things that, that were shared, there's so much specificity in the worship. It's not just lackadaisical, show up and do what we want. It is this specific thing. First Chronicles 23, 2 through 5 says, David assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites. The Levites, 30 years old and upward, were numbered, and the total was 38,000 men. 24,000 of these, David said, shall have the charge of the work of the house of the Lord. 6,000 shall be officers and judges, 4,000 gatekeepers, and 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that I have made for praise. What, why is David doing all that? Well, because that's what the Lord revealed to him in the writing. That's what the Lord wanted David to do. So the specific things that David just did that right there, it's because God told him to do that. Look at um, 25, 1 through 3. David's, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service of the sons of Asaph and of Hermon and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. The list of those who did the work and of their duties was of the sons of Asaph, and we see a, a bunch of names there um, through the next three verses. And it says, um, the direction of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied with the lyre and in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. And then in verse 7, it says, the number of them along with their brothers who were trained in singing to the Lord, all who were skillful was 288. So we're, we're at the point of having hundreds of skillful musicians, people who are skilled, not just, not just think they can sing, but who are skilled 
who have been gifted by the Lord to be able to pick up an instrument, to pick up a lyre, to pick up a harp, to pick up a tambourine, to lift up their voices in a way that was unique, strong, powerful, moving, and to lead the people in worship. They would lead the people in the singing. And these were things that were ordained by God, communicated through David to make a change uh, in the way that the tabernacle moved. Today, we not only get to, but we're supposed to sing because through David, God ordained that when his people gathered to worship, the principal means that they would worship him would be through song. And we understand this song in light of sacrifice. And that's what you were saying earlier, that that's what it means that we bring to God a sacrifice of praise. You can picture as you're lifting up your voice, there would be sacrifices brought to the Lord. The animal would be slaughtered. It would be laid on the altar. So the aroma was pleasing unto the Lord. He would smell it. And it was pleasing to him. And in the same manner, we gather in here usually, we lift up song to the Lord. When we do so, it's a sacrifice of praise. We're not rushing things. We're not eager to get to lunch. We are eager to please the Lord with a steady hand of a consecrated worshiper. And we're offering him something that it says is a pleasing aroma. It is sweet to him when he hears his people sing his praises in a way that is unrushed, focused on him, eager to glorify and honor him, and in accordance with the way that he has told us we can approach him. And look what happens when they sing. Turn over to Second Chronicles. Something really wonderful happens when they sing. Second Chronicles 5. Look at verse 13. The ark has been brought into the temple because God has said there's going to be a place where the ark is housed, where my people will gather for worship. So the ark's brought in the temple, and in 5, 13 through 14, it says this. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison and praise thanks, uh, and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments, and praise the Lord. If anyone ever asks you about using instruments, it's a really good passage. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's what they were lifting up. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So when they lifted up their song to the Lord, like the Lord told them to lift it up, what happened? His glory filled it. They couldn't, it, could you imagine what it would be like if we came here on a Sunday morning, everyone consecrated, ready, set apart, eager to worship God, and we lift up our voices, and the glory of the Lord is so dense in this little room that we just had to leave, like joyfully, like, oh my goodness, let's get out. This is amazing. That the glory of the Lord was present. That's what happened when they sang wholeheartedly the way that they're called to. That's what happened. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When we sing to the Lord and when we call on his name, his glory is present. Why? Because it's the fulfillment of a promise. Turn back to Exodus 20, 24. When God was putting all these things together about tabernacle, explaining dynamics and details to his people. He says this in Exodus 20, 24. There's an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen. And then he says this, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. God keeps his promises. Do you know why you remember the name of the Lord? It's because he's caused you to remember his name. You don't come here and say, oh, God, we remembered your name. Where's my brownie points? Where's my blessing? Hook me up. 
You remember the name of the Lord because he causes you to remember the name of the Lord and he keeps his promises and it says he'll be with us and he blesses us. God keeps his promises. Our times of corporate worship are all about him. And when he causes us to remember him, he comes to us, he's present, he blesses us. When we sing, we sing as a blessed people in the presence of the living God. And it's not just symbolic. I hope this affects our worship. I really do. I kind of want to just talk about all this again on Sunday morning before we worship in song. Sometimes it feels as though in corporate worship, um, there's not a whole lot of reason for too much excitement. We're not, you know, charismaniacs around here, so we don't get all excited when we worship. But there should be excitement in our worship. Um, it, we don't need to turn into an aerobics class, but we do need to have some, some wholeheartedness and some excitement about what the Lord is doing. Um, I have a tendency to focus more on the lyric and less on the melody and the arrangement, but I want you all to know that God ordains that we utilize both to represent his glory. Our worship leaders need to know we use the lyric, we use the melody, we use every tone, every key of every instrument, every note sung, the arrangement of what we do. All of that by God's design is to come together to glorify him as his people Sing, So it's no small thing, and there should be excitement in there. In fact, when we are engaged by the living God, our souls should be stirred, and our emotions should be moved. It's not simple facts that we're singing about. It's exaltation. We're calling on the name of the Lord, invoking his presence, asking him to bless us, and he does. So knowing this will help us to be more true in our worship. We'll stand humbly at the appropriate times and refuse to sit, and at other times we'll kneel humbly while others should rightly fall on our faces It's not just about standing up without being told. Like sometimes we get that warm, fuzzy feeling when that happens. Like someone's leading worship and like that one person stands and two people and their two friends and their two friends. And it's like, man, we stood up without being told. Like it should be more than that. It should be, sometimes we should be on our faces. Sometimes we should have our hands lifted so high because we're so eager to lift the praises as high as we possibly can or we're so eager to be present with the Lord that we cannot help but contain ourselves because we are so eager and so eager to be wholehearted to please him and to pour out a sacrifice of praise that is less worried about shine and less worried about efficiency and less worried about being respectful. I'm not saying be disrespectful in your worship. I'm saying some of us need to abandon some of the reserve that we have because our Lord is so incredibly good and deserving of our whole heart. I'm worried that sometimes we could be bound by misunderstanding. When we're engaged by God, when he's present, we should let him direct us. So don't just try to be fancy and I'm gonna get on my face right now. If the Lord says, get on your face, you better get on your face. If the Lord says, lift your hands, you better lift your hands. Let him direct you in your worship. We're to be overwhelmed by his presence. The aim is not to turn corporate worship, as I said before, into an aerobics class. The aim is not that there would be any kind of disorder in our times of corporate worship. I don't, that's not a time of disorder. Corporate worship is not to be a time of confusion. We're not a people of confusion because our God's not a God of confusion. But, A people who engage the living God rejoice greatly. Sometimes hands will be lifted, sometimes we'll weep, sometimes we'll fall on our faces and beg for him to come and take us home. And most of the time we'll rejoice. But if we keep God central to our worship and we understand that he means for song to be used in worship and we understand that he comes to us and he blesses us, then I feel like we'll be freed up to be as true in our worship as he calls us to be. Not just hopeful that we're wholehearted, but mindful that we're wholehearted in the right way, the way that he says it, so that we don't make the mistake that Uzzah makes. So we're going to close um, in worship and song. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then Clint's going to lead us in a few songs, and then after that, we'll, just, we'll be dismissed. Clint, you can dismiss him whenever we're done. Um, but let's pray, and then we'll, we'll sing.
Lord, we are thankful uh, for your design. I'm really thankful that it wasn't just some guy who decided to start singing one day and it, and it caught on, um, that it was catchy. Uh, I'm thankful that when we lift our voices in song, that we can know that it was our Lord, the one true God, who ordained that we sing, who causes us to remember your name and to lift it up. Lord, I, I am, when it comes to worship and song, I, I, I so don't want to manipulate. I don't want to be manipulative or um, quippy or unrealistic in our times of corporate worship, but I, I do want us to be really wholehearted the right way in our worship. Um, not just excited, uh, but moved uh, by the Spirit. Um, I'm eager for you to be honored and glorified um, the way you designed it, Lord. Um, if anyone in here has reservations that, that we shouldn't have in worship, um, I pray, Lord, that you would help us with that. Help us to not be distracted by the opinions of others. Help us to not be so wrapped up in the approval of other people that we would um, refuse to, to be undignified. Help us to um, not be so distracted by matters, maybe at work or, or at home, uh, that we can't worship you because our, our heads are in another place. Uh, help us to see your design and to, to call it good um, because you are great, you are greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. Lord, I'm thankful for this time in the middle of the week that we could open your word and be encouraged and be informed and be warned um, and just be indwelled by the Spirit and affected so that we could have any understanding at all. Uh, Lord, as we worship you, help us to do so rightly and help us to do so in Jesus' name as we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.